two ways of life, but only one way that is blessed. You know, we're going to look at the most, if not the most, one of the most, I would rank it with Psalm 23, Psalm 110 as the most known Psalms. Most of you can paraphrase this if you've been in the Christian walk for a while. And even if you're here and you're lost and you, you wouldn't necessarily know it comes from Psalm 1, when I read it, you'll say, yeah, I'm familiar with that. I know about that. The word of the Lord says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the introductory psalm. It's been known as a preface. No author is given. No beginning is given. It simply runs into the first statement. Blessed is the man. Traditionally, the way of the righteous and the wicked title that you see there is not there. It's not there in the original. Most of the psalms have a heading. And you will see them in a good English translation. If you have one, you can see them in the, in the italics. Above a psalm of David in, in cha chapter 3, in Psalm 3, it says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. So that's kind of the inscription of the Hebrew Bible. That's the, uh, the inscription carried over into the Septuagint often. Okay, so the, the psalm here in Psalm 1 doesn't have that. This is an introductory psalm. It's a way of opening up to us the theology of the entire 150 chapters in six short verses. If you understand Psalm 1, you can rightly interpret 2 through 150. If you misunderstand it, you will struggle throughout the book. I've enjoyed this. This is uh, um, the second part of a series that may stretch for a while. This is the second part. First part was in our wisdom and worship service, uh, wisdom and worship series. Excuse me. We last year journeyed through uh, part of the last part of the year, Proverbs 1 through 9. And now we're coming to Psalms, the other, part, other book known for its worship. And we're going we're gonna to march through, believe it or not, God willing, Lord, for, Lord forbid that it's on my power because we'll never do this. We're going to go through 41 Psalms this year, the first book. The book of Psalms is huge. And it's divided traditionally in several ways. The earliest division was to divide it by chapters 1 through 50, 51 through 100, and 101 through 150. And the early church fathers said that, uh, that division kind of in their minds wrapped around the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that was their reasoning for dividing it three ways. But Jerome and some of the other fathers began, origin, began to divide it five ways into five books. That's the division we will follow. Psalm, the first book of the Psalms, 1 through 41. Second book, 42 through 72. Those two books together are comprised as the Psalms of David. Now there are Psalms in chapters 1 through 72 that are not David's. And there are Psalms after chapter 72 that are David's. So it's kind of a strange way to think of it. But the earliest writings we have about this say the first 72 Psalms are ascribed to David. 
73 through 89 makes up the third book, 90 through 106, and 107 through 150. That's the way it's divided, the five books. And you can kind of see what we're going to do here over the next several years. Lord willing, is we're going to march through the last part of Proverbs after we finish the first, and then we're going to come back and do the second book, and then we're going to go to another place, and we're going to come back and do the third, and so forth and so on. This Wisdom and Worship series may comprise a lot of your lives. Some of you may go meet the Lord while we're preaching here. And then you'll know what I preach because you'll know it better than me, right? Some of you will have to endure all of it. <laughs> the, the Psalms are of different types. Not only are they divided differently, but there are different types of Psalms. There are the Psalms of cursing or the imprecatory Psalms where David particularly prays down God's vengeance on his enemies. That's an interesting category. When we get to them, you'll have some real theological struggles. Like, am I supposed to pray this kind of prayer? God cuts me off at the intersection. The imprecatory psalms come to mind, right? Is that how we're supposed to use them? We'll hopefully dig into that. Psalms of ascent. That was the psalms that the Hebrew people sang as they went up the hill into the house of the Lord to worship. The psalms of descent, which they sang as they left the house of worship. The Psalms of Lamentation. Most of us are familiar with these Psalms. We've been in those hard and broken times and we've turned to Psalm 41 and 42 and others and said, Oh God, our heart is being ripped from our chest. We are being chased like deer who have been wounded. We have no hope, but our hope is in you. This is a Psalm of Lamentation, a Psalm of great grieving. We then have Psalms of wisdom or wisdom psalms. And, and book one, uh, chapter one, the one we'll do with today is a wisdom psalm. You'll notice they have a lot to do with the book of Proverbs and you'll see a lot of interlap in their themes. The early church fathers thought that the psalms were uniquely a microcosm of the Bible. Athanasius likened them to a variety within a botanical garden. In other words, as you come into a botanical garden, there's a variety of all the types of plants that you will see throughout the rest of the garden on your journey. And he says the book of Psalms is like that. If you want a microcosm, a picture of what the whole Bible is like, Athanasius says go to the book of Psalms and read it. And you will get a taste of all of the Bible. Athanasius held it in great esteem. Basil the Great of the Eastern Church described it as a great storehouse. He, he is one who would say that the Psalms, Psalm 1 being particularly a foundation for the whole of the book. And then the walls built up and then the, the ceiling. And at the end we have a house built on the, the, the call of God to salvation. In Psalm 1, 1 through 50 we find the call of God to salvation, and the hope that resides in only the Messiah or the promised one who was to come. We know him as Jesus Christ. For most of history, the church used this as a layman's biblical source for faith and devotion. If you've ever met people, my granddad was one of these, and, uh, and my grandmother still is one of these, that they just seem to ooze the book of Psalms. You've been around those older folk in the faith. You know, they don't say, you know, in Psalm 37, it says this. They just, they say things and you think, where did that, that's, that's awesome. Where did that come from? And you get talked to them and they say, oh, that comes from the Psalm, you know. And it's like they've lived long enough and they've suffered enough that they've gone to the book of Psalm and they found their healing for their wounds. It's classic, classically seen that way, that it's a source of faith, it's a source of devotion. Some of the great uh, churchmen of the past have spent their whole lives 
in daily devotion. Starting in verse 1, going to 150, and starting again. They just continually study it and keep it before them. It has been the words of many a pastor over the deathbed of a loved, beloved saint. It has been the words of a bomb to help a mother who's just lost a child. A psalm can be spoken in the right way and heal the wounds of a divorce. Psalms are a book that we should turn our minds to. But if we're honest, how many sermon series have we heard preached on the book of Psalms? Not many. Not many. Some, but not many. Especially in our modern day. Not so many. John Calvin preached the Psalms. Listen to this, so you won't get discouraged, all right? Hopefully. We're going to take almost a whole year to go through the first 41 chapters. You think, oh my goodness, that's so, that takes so long. Calvin, on Sunday afternoons for 10, and some believe 11 years, preached through the Psalms every Sunday. It was one of his most loved series. He then spent another year, after he had written all of it, out and preached it. He then spent another year compiling it in 1557 and making his commentary on the psalm. Eleven, okay, we'll say a decade, ten years. In one book of the Bible, we see his pastoral heart. He said, to make progress in the Christian life, it is essential to live in the Psalter. Since it combines personal biography and theology. It's real life, isn't it? When you go to the Psalms and you read it, you hear the cries of the brokenhearted. You hear the faint plea for faith when faith is dwindling. You hear the victory song of someone whose prayers have been answered or sins have been forgiven. It's your daily life on display in a lot of ways right here. You find yourself there in the great men and their writings. He also said, it is in the Psalms that the Christian is taught not only how familiar access to God may be open to us, but how we may lawfully and freely lay bare before Him the infirmities which a sense of shame prevents our confessing to men. Some of you are here this morning and you have, are ridden with sin. Let's just be honest. We come from hard lives, right? We live in a real world. We all sin. And you come and you say, if that guy over there knew really what was going on in me, if he knew the things I had done this week, some of you moms and wives are saying, if they knew the thoughts and intentions of my heart, they would never have another thing to do with me. And so you won't confess those things. He sa Calvin says, you need to spend time in the psalm because it will teach you how to lay bare before God Almighty your sin. And to say to him things you would never say to someone else in this life. It's a balm to the hurting. That's what the book of Psalms, when I think of it, it's a balm to the hurting. It's an encouragement to the downtrodden. It's food for the journey. It's the bright light of the gospel shining forward to victory. The New Testament quotes the Psalms prolifically. I don't want to say more than any other book, but as much as any book in the Old Testament. And our Lord loved the Psalms. He quoted them often, and the apostles often preached. Some of the most famous chapters of the Bible are comprised mainly of Psalms. Romans chapter 3. You remember it? It is an interchange of Paul's in, uh, paraphrasing of Psalms and of the, of the book of Isaiah. 
And he just pulls them one quote after another, one rendition of the wording of Psalms after another. They're not in quotation marks because for them, they spent so much time there, it became their words. They didn't often quote it directly. Sometimes they were just paraphrasing it. The book of Psalms is a beast for me. You know, I think about it and I'm intimidated. I think I'm 35 years old. This is probably something I didn't think out wisely. I should have waited until I was older to preach them. But we're here now. I put it on the calendar. What do I do? Okay. And so you're going to sometimes show up and say, man, he, he's really struggling. Pray for me. And sometimes you're going to leave and say, man, that was inspiring. And sometimes you're going to leave and say, I was convicted. But all the while, let us leave seeing Christ. If we don't see Christ, if we just see some pithy statements and some beautiful rhymes, we've missed it. Let's see our Savior together. So let's start the journey. In this, pa in this passage, we, say, we see two ways of life, but only one way is blessed. In Psalm chapter 1. I've read it to you, so I won't read it again. First of all, we need to see, and I have to admit, I'm not very good at it, but I did alliterate this outline, Aaron. I'll get the better version when I'm done. Just make sure you write it down for me. The person that lives in blessedness is described. The person that lives in blessedness is described. Because here we see in our English translation, most translations you will see blessed is the man. And it seems to indicate the action of the blessing. But the Hebrew word here behind the English word it, it doesn't connotate an emphasis on the act of the blessing, but rather the condition of being blessed. The life that is blessed. It might be good that in some, Bruce Waltke interprets it this way. He says, the one who is fortunate. The one who is fortunate. The man who has come into good fortune. This is who we're talking about here. So we see, first of all, that this is an idea of the condition of the life, not the act of blessing. He's not saying this is how... Uh, he's, he's saying how, how the life of the blessed one looks, not um, necessarily talking about the action of blessing. Success might be a good way to put it. How do we find success in the Christian life? How do we even measure success? That's the thought I have often. You know, there's lots of ways to measure success, not all of them biblical, right? How do we even do that? Well, this psalm tells us how to do that. Why? I ask the question, why is the man fortunate? Why is he blessed? First of all, he does not live purposely. Purpose, purpose, I'll get it out in a minute. Purposelessly with the wicked. He's not hanging out aimlessly with the wanderers. That's what it says. Who walks not. So he wants to tell us about the life and the condition of the one who is blessed. He starts out with the negative. It's a good teaching tool. He says, look, this is the life of those who are not blessed, in a sense. So he says, if you want to be blessed, walk not in the counsel of the wicked. Don't wander aimlessly with a bunch of wanderers. People that have no root in their life. Who have no direction in life. Who will bump into all kinds of activities unknowingly, imbibing them and then living them out. He then says, nor stands in the way of sinners. So secondly, we see he does not make, the blessed man does not make his life pattern the life of the sinner. 
The sinner is the one who's intentionally missing the mark. He's gone, first phrase was, wandering about, aimless, purposeless. He doesn't know what he's here for in life. He's just kind of doing and taking whatever will come his way. The progression is the next step is a sinner. Someone who now is in intentional life patterns of sin. They've made the decision. They've set out their course in a sense. They're in the way of sin. And he says the blessed man does not stand in the way of the one who intentionally misses the mark. That old comedian who said, I seen myself do it before I did it. Right? That's the sinner. The wanderer might just end up in sin occasionally because he doesn't know what he's doing or where he's going. But the sinner sets his mind to it. He says, that looks fun. That looks inviting. I know it's against God. I will do it anyway because it brings me a moment of pleasure. The blessed man does not wander around with wanderers, nor does he stand in the way, the pathway of the sinner. Thirdly, category, third thing, is he does not take up residence or sit with the scoffer. Hardened-hearted sinners. Scoffers are people who don't just sin, but they entice others to it. They mock the very character and Word of God, and their lives are consumed with hell-bent, selfish ambition. The blessed man doesn't wander around in life aimless. He doesn't stand and plant his life in the way of intentionally rebelling against God, nor does the blessed man sit down and make residence, take up home with those who mock God. Listen, I just want to confess to you, I was convicted to this week as I was studying, saying about my own life, I can be very guilty of that first one, can't you? I mean, it's easy to just get tired, to get loaded up. Let's just be honest, you have a hard day at work, what's the easiest thing to do? Go home, sit down, Yes, say it loud. Watch TV. Aimless. No purpose. I'm just kind of flipping through the boob tube. And whatever it lands on. You know? Whatever it lands on. And, and before I know it, if I'm not careful, in just a short while, I'm wandering with the wanderers. I'm bumping around in places that I really ought not be experiencing. I want to profess to you that one of the largest ways we aimlessly go through life is through entertainment in our culture. Entertainment of the kind of TVs, movies, ball games, sporting events, recreational sports. There's nothing wrong with these things. Do not hear me saying, go home and bash your big screen TV. I won't bash mine. If you do that, you're lost, not mine. You can come to my house and watch Super Bowl. I'm not, I'm going to watch the Super Bowl. I'll just tell you, I'm going to watch it. There's nothing wrong with that. There is something wrong when that becomes the overriding theme of our life to entertain ourselves. It's aimless. When you look at the hours in your week, when you look at the hours of a month, when you just look at the pattern of your life, what is it consumed with? Because if we're not careful, we will find ourselves wandering in places with wanderers. That doesn't look all that bad, but then the next step invades us. We stand in the way of the sinner. 
we wander around long enough with those who are wandering and then we take in their way of life and we begin to believe their theology and we begin to take in the philosophy and we start to live it out. We become sinners. Step down from that. Once you've been there long enough and it is the pattern of your life, it's easy to become a mocker. Then you see religious people, godly people, and you find in your heart this voice that just makes fun of them. They're prude. They're uptight. They have no fun. They're so conservative. They're far too modest. They're worried about all the wrong things. They're legalist. Be careful that you haven't set your pattern with the wanderers, stood in the place of the sinner, and now you're easing over into the residence of those who mock the way of God. John in 1 John says it this way, that if you have a life of sinning, you are not a believer. That makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? That's the synopsis of what John says in 1 John. If your lifestyle is that of sin, you don't believe in God. You are not in the gospel. He who is a friend of this world cannot be a friend of God. That's another way he says it. He who loves this world cannot say he loves God. He who says he has no sin calls God a liar and therefore doesn't love God. We're uncomfortable in the first John. I'll just be, raise your hand. I am. Nobody wants to do their daily Bible studies in that book. Get hammered, right? But I see in that, I was telling Dave, I see in that something very unique. No apostle was closer to the Lord in relationship than John. You become like the one you hang with. He was so focused on Christ. He was so in love with Jesus that the things of this world faded in importance. It just went away. He didn't wander aimlessly. He had a purpose in life. It was to bring others into a relationship with this Lord. He didn't stand in the way of sinners because he knew it, it was not the way of the mark. It was not the life of a godly man. It was not in keeping with the character of God. So he didn't stand there. And he never sat down and made his residence with those who mocked Christ. How could he? Even at the foot of the cross. Everyone else is gone. The women and who? John. John just wanted to be near the Lord. All the scoffers mocking Jesus as he hung. I imagine John with big tears. Crushed. He guarded his heart from the way of the scoffer. Christians, let's do that together. How did he do that? How did he do that? 1 John and 2 John and 3 John tell us he did it in the community of faith. He did it in the church. So Grace Fellowship, an action point for having a life of blessing. It, one of those is that we need to watch for our own life. And we need to, after being watchful over our life, the life of our family and then the life of our church. We need to be a community that encourages one another not to aimlessly go through life. Not to stand in the way of sinners. So how many of us see people sinning and we just say, well that's their business. That's like walking by a man on fire and saying he'll put himself out. A dude's drowning and you step on his hand. And when we see people sinning, we don't go in judgment. We say, please let me walk with you. Let me help you. Let me share with you life that we might together pursue Christ. First thing we see is the person 
that lives in blessedness is described to us. And the first way he does that is by talking about the fortunate or what they don't do. What type of life does the blessed man live? If he doesn't live this way, what's the way that he lives? He delights or finds joy in the law, the Torah, the catechetical teaching of Israel, which was given to them by I am Yahweh. The word here is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. He finds his delight in the law of the Lord. When I think about that, I think about my attitude towards the law, and I'm convicted. The law was not legalism. The law was, a, was an outflow of relationship. And the blessed man sees that, and he says, that's what I want in life. That's who I want to be like. That's the mark of godly character, and I'm pursuing it. Not so I can be saved, but because I'm saved. If you're here today and you say, I'm a Christian... What does that mean? It means that you're a follower of Christ. How do you know you're following Christ? Through the precepts and the law of the Lord. You behave as Jesus behaved. What empowers you to that? We'll get there, but the Spirit. Not hard work and effort on your own account, but the work of God in you inclines you to that. The law was a delight. It was a joy. It was a source of happiness to the blessed man. Secondly, he meditates. Focuses his mind on the truth. This is not Eastern mystical meditation where you empty your mind and focus on nothing. This is godly meditation where you fill your mind with the Word of God and then think on it day and night. Day and night. I've encouraged you in this way as a congregation for a couple of years now, and I just want to continue to beat the drum a little. And I don't really care if you take my, the method I use. I use Robert Murray McShane's daily Bible plan for reading. Okay? It's a beast. I get it. It's a lot to read. Four chapters at least, sometimes six. But let me call your mind. When you print that out, notice it says morning and evening. In application of our verse. Day and night focus on the Word of God. So what we know of Robert Murray McShane and what we know of Charles Spurgeon and what we know of many of the great saints was they opened their mornings with prayer and Bible reading and they closed their day with prayer and Bible reading. The first thought they wanted when they got up in the morning was to think on the Lord and when they laid down to go to sleep at night, they thought on the Lord. And so they divided their readings. Morning and evening. There's two-year plans. There's 90-day plans. I've tried that. When you think the year-long plan's hard, try the 90-day plan. You'll get to about 50, and you will be, day 50, you'll be buzzing. You read through the whole Bible in 90 days. Okay? You become a monk. During that season, my wife said, I never see you. I'm on task. I'm trying to get it done, you know. I don't recommend that one. Yearly, two-year, listen, it doesn't matter to me how you do it. Some of you don't need a plan. Some of you just take the Word and read a nugget of it, and you'll meditate on it, and at night you'll meditate on it, and then through, it may take you eight years to go through the Bible. That's okay. It's fine. The point is to focus the mind on what you read. What do I try to focus on? When I read the Bible, I try to focus on the setting, the writing, and what it means, and how it applied Across time, I quickly try to say, how does this apply over into Christ and then from Christ to the church? 
So, in other words, how do I live in light of this? Right? That's kind of the end. Focus the mind. That takes meditation. Sometimes I read it at 6 o'clock and it's lunch or after before it dawns on me because I'm just running it through my mind constantly. When I read through the Gospels, it's not uncommon that I dream about the Gospels. I don't dream a lot. When I'm in the Gospels, I often will dream the story I just went to sleep reading. It's weird. I'm never Jesus. Just don't worry. Nor an apostle. <laughs> I hadn't seen myself as a Pharisee yet, but that, that could happen, unfortunately. I'd be closer, unfortunately, a lot of days to them than the apostle. Listen, meditate, focus, saturate, think. Don't sit in the way of the scorner. Sit in the law. Make your life in the law of God. Meditate on it day and night. Find your joy and delight in it. Is that how you think of Bible study? Is that how you think of meditation? Is delight? I have to confess, a lot of times I don't. So what we've seen in these first two verses is we've seen the life of a blessed person. The person that lives in blessedness is described to us. And we focused on the stair steps in the first part. You notice the first step and then the, second, the first step, the wicked. The second step, the sinners. The last step, the scoffer. The deepest, most dedicated sinners are the scoffers. Likewise, we also see the downward spiral of the action. First of all, you're, you're walking, meandering about in the way and the counsel of the wicked. Then you find yourself standing. That's a more resolute position. In the wandering stage, you're just kind of bumping into it. You're bumping into it. You're bumping into it. But in the standing stage, you've decided, hey, I want to try this out for a while. And in the sitting stage, you've pitched a tent with the people. You made it your life. Aaron reminded me of a quote. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. And it will make you pay a price higher than you're willing to pay. It always keeps you longer than you want to stay. Takes you farther than you want to go. It makes you pay more than you're willing to pay. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. But not just avoiding that, but what do we fill it up with? Jesus said, if we cast out the demons and don't give them and make his life orderly and leave him with nothing to set his teeth on, the end will be worse than the beginning. So the psalmist doesn't do that, does he? He says, stay away from all these things and stay in this, the law of the Lord. Secondly, the picture... So we saw the person, now we see the picture of the two ways of blessedness and wickedness. Verses 3 through 4. The blessed man is like a tree. In the eastern world, the tree was firm, enduring. It pushes us to the idea that eternal dwelling in the garden of God will happen for the one who lives a blessed life. He's planted by the streams of water. It's a picture of life-giving, the life-giving nature of God. He's Planted by the streams of water. He's not planted by a stream. A stream is different than a river. A river could flood and overwhelm people. In the eastern world, when they talked about a river, it could become dangerous and destructive. Some of you might have seen rivers rise. How dangerous and destructive they are. That's not this. And neither was it a cistern that could dry up over a long time. A cistern might run out of water. A stream was rather... Constant, steady, life-giving water. 
So the tree, the blessed man is like a tree, a permanent fixture planted by the streams of God's life-giving spirit in the law, pulling through his roots the law and nourishment that comes from it so that he is like Christ. That's the picture of the blessed man. Permanent, eternal, never shaken, never fallen, never withering, never not fruiting. Fruit is being born out in this person's life through the Spirit, and his leaf never withers. He's permanent. Isn't that what we want for our lives? In a world that is topsy-turvy and often turned upside down, don't you want something permanent? Don't you want to have something that will not leave you? Lost man or woman, child, listen. You can have the best career, the best marriage, the best children, the best retirement. But if you don't know Christ and your life's not planted by this river, let me tell you, you will lose it all. Some of you won't make it to the eternal judgment. Some of you will lose it in this life. How sad. I was reading this this week. I showed the article. Amy read it as best she could. Our world is being... I think of this analogy because it's so real to our world. I think of practically if a life is dug down deep into the Word and is pulling the nourishment of Christ into the soul, I think about the permanency of the things in their life. They may not be the richest, but they will be provided for. They may not have perfect marriages, but they have enduring marriages that stand the test of time. They may not have the best and brightest children, but by the end, we often see the godly have blessed children. Some of you are ready to give up. Don't give up. Don't quit. Some of you are married to lost people. And you, you think there's no hope. There's still hope. Keep believing. Stay planted in the Word. Keep drawing in Christ to your soul. Don't give up. Your, your world may fall around you, but the rock of Christ will stand the test. That's what I'm saying. I think about even in the more natural things that we involve ourselves in. I read an article, the article I referenced just a minute ago that I showed Amy. I could, we couldn't either one finish it. It was written by a British author, just released this past week. Some of you may have seen it. He has 11-year-old girls, and he's facing the problem that in Britain, they have had to, they have had to put a cabinet-level position in place. David Cameron has put a cabinet-level position in place to deal with the problem of pornography in their country. The leader of a free country has made a minister of, of pornography, basically. Their culture is so saturated with pornography, and the fruit of that, what has come out of that lifestyle, is 11 and 12 and 13-year-old girls committing suicide at the highest rate ever known. Because they have been exposed to this, they have acted it out, and it made them pay a price they weren't willing to pay. Sin never pays in the end. It always takes more than it gives. It cannot sustain you. It will fall apart. It's not permanent. Little girls, listen to me. I'm not your daddy, but I feel a lot of times like your daddy. Run. Some guy that wants to prey on you, run. You can go to your daddy or you can come to me. 
Either one's sufficient. Run. We will not cast you out. We will bring you in and love you and protect you and nurture you. There is hope. The story started with a 13-year-old promising all-A student girl throwing herself out of a window to her death because of pictures that a boy had of her that he had spread all over the community. It's impermanent, and the life of the wicked will destroy you. And that's not how it ever starts, but that's how it ends. The godly life's not that way. It's permanent, it's lasting, and it's nourished through even the driest of times with the love of Christ. The wicked are not so, he says, but they are like chaff, driven by the wind. They are driven by the wind. The chaff is that kernel around that stuff that we used to combine wheat all the time as a kid, that husk around the wheat kernel. So it was picked off, it was placed in the threshing floor, and then it was tossed on a high hill in Israel. In the ancient day, they would toss it and toss it. And when it would go in the air, the kernel would separate from the chaff and come down, and the wind would blow the chaff away. It'd blow the chaff away. After they had done this for a while, they would have to, at the end of the harvest season, burn off the chaff. It's highly combustible. So then they would have fires all throughout Israel after the threshing was done. What the writer of the psalmist is saying, he's saying, your life is bound up in wickedness and not bound up in the law of God. Your life will blow away by the judgment of God and you will burn. In the end, you will burn. So it's pictured for us. The wicked are worthless. They're light. They're driven by the wind. They're impermanent. They're judged finally by the fire of God's wrath. We've seen the person of the blessed life. We've seen the picture of both ways of life. Finally, we see the pronouncement of final blessing and cursing. In verses 5 through 6, we see that he says, The wicked don't stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. A law example. They can't stand before the righteous judge, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I want to propose something to you as I just thought about this week, this psalm, I believe verses 1 through 2 are a type of Christ. He is the blessed man. His life is the ultimate picture of one planted by the streams of water. He has life-giving force and he imbibes the law of God perfectly. The last picture is of the way of the righteous. And so the way of the righteous, because they are in the Lord, are known by God. So now he, as the type of this blessed man, empowers us to be blessed, to live in blessedness. So the blessing from God the Father falls on Christ and from Christ to all of those in Christ. That's why I think he doesn't focus on the action of blessing. The action of blessing happened to Christ, and it feeds through him to us. It's an indirect blessing. It's an overflow of the way God blessed his life. Now we receive the overflow of that. But the wicked stand in the way of Satan and they will face his sure doom in the end. They will be judged. God intimately knows the ways of the righteous, but he does not know the sinner. Matthew 7. This was the passage that really 
help me, I guess, as much as any in understanding. Scripture interprets Scripture. So you look at Matthew 7, in a way of ending, I want to draw it together with Jesus' teaching. Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit and the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. They're like chaff. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. How will we recognize them and ultimately what will happen to them? Because in this life, it's not always easy to see. But look what it says in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Who delights himself in the law of God. That's who enters heaven. On, the day, on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Why? Because they're wicked. He doesn't know their ways. He's not intimately informed with them. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So as I see it, there are two ways of life, but only one is blessed. And I don't know where you are today. I, I pray that you are in the blessed life. That you are living and breathing and enjoying and, 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 and prospering because of the life that you have in relationship with Christ. But I am well aware in a group this size, close to 200 folks, some of you are not. Some of you are not. So what's the solution? That's why I brought up how I began to see the first two verses as the picture of Christ's life. You can't leave a sermon like this. You can leave in two ways. You can leave and say, I'm going to try to be blessed. And so you go work real hard. I'll tell you about how long that lasts. For most of you, by lunch tomorrow, no hope. Right? You've already been frustrated at work. You woke up. Your kids were late going to school. Your husband left the house in a huff and mad at you because breakfast was burned. But he didn't get up and fix his own breakfast. I mean, you know, things happen real life. And you leave a sermon like this and say, man, the blessed life is the way to go. That's what I want. I'm going to be that. I'm going to live that way. I'm going to do it. By lunch tomorrow, you're off the tracks. By Tuesday, you're not even trying. You're done. By next Sunday, you wonder, why do I even need to go back to church? Because I can't do what he's saying. Some of you will hear it and not hear it. The focus of the passage is on the one blessed man, Jesus Christ, who on our behalf kept the law of God. He did what we couldn't do. He walked not in the way of the wicked, nor stood in the path of sinners, nor ever sat in the seat of a scoffer. You've already done it. He never did. And not only did He do that, but listen to the Gospel. He then says to the Father, I laid down my life for my sheep. I obeyed for them. And that'd be awesome. That'd bring us back up to snuff. We wouldn't be evil anymore. But He went further. He died on our behalf so that we then... Have a blessed life. He empowers the blessed life. How is it that our way is blessed? The Lord knows our way. He recognizes it as His way. 
that he is empowered through the stream of ever-giving, life-giving joy that is found in the Word and the Spirit of God. You leave this message one of two ways. You leave bucked up with your bootstraps, going to try harder, you will fail. I've done it. I know. Or you can leave resigned to say, I will know Christ and nothing else. I, I don't know him, but I'm going to know him. And I'm going to plunge myself into him. And if he's not the way, I have no hope. There's no backup plans. He is my salvation or I don't have salvation. Let me encourage you, leave the second way. Leave pursuing to know Christ so that he knows you and blesses the life, makes it prosper throughout eternity. Works won't do it because he's already worked.